0: If you'd turn tonight to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And we find here a series of parables. There's actually three of them. And Jesus tells them, really I believe exactly as as we have chapter 15 laid out for us in Scripture. Really as a collection. And he's making a point. He's speaking to the hearts uh, of all of us. And, And he's really giving us a glimpse, if you will, at the Father heart of God the work of the Holy Spirit, and, of course, the absolute saving power of Christ himself, of Jesus. But Jesus begins to speak these things after he really comes into view for us in verse 1 in the way that he really sees the world. As I was sharing this morning, you know, realistically, at the end of the day, the world's going to know that we are actually God's real disciples, the world is going to know that we're really God's children. The world is going to know that we are exactly who we claim to be by the love that we have first and foremost for each other as the body of Christ and then secondarily the way that fabric of love goes out to the world around us. And Jesus in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel tells this beautiful series of parables, the three of them. They're all on things that are lost they all come at that lostness from a different perspective. And I believe as the Pharisees were listening in, um, they got a pretty serious beat down. Uh, they they kind of got got their clock completely clocked by the Lord. And it says there in verse 1 and then I want to pray, verses 1 and 2 in Luke 15. And then all the tax collectors, now I want you to realize what this is saying. It's as if Jesus basically, as he's teaching, somehow attracts every single person in the region who's got issues. And then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near him. He's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been in the region of the Sea of Galilee at the northern shore, and they came to hear him And I want you you to see this really carefully. Because this is the response of the legalists. This is the response of religion. This is the response of people who really can't stand God's grace. This is the response of people who cling towards law and legalism. This is what they always do. This is what they always say. They have a problem with the Lord actually saving lost people. It's as if there is something that we could do, should do, to merit the graciousness of our Savior. And all the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you receive sinners. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came into this world, that the world through you would be saved. God, thank you that you're the solver of the great problem that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we pray tonight that you just speak to us through these three parables. Through this time in your word, Lord, encourage us and strengthen us, build us up. Cause us, Lord, to know a little bit more about you, our precious Savior. We bless you, we praise you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Jesus, seeing this, all the tax collectors, all the sinners, he's basically saying, all the people with whom most of us would say, yeah, that person's really got a problem. They really have an issue. Every last one of those people draws near to the Lord. And the response of the religionist, the response of the legalist, the response of the law uh, expounder, the the response of people who are overtly religious and i want to say something to you and may shock you a little bit. It has always been my take that legalism and the law are very often a substitute for a real relationship with Jesus. Most of the time when I'm dealing with someone who has a problem with being critical in their spirit, judgmental in their attitude... Someone who always is willing to take out their Bible and say, Thus says the Lord. The person who clings to the law as if, you know, somehow they're slightly better than the average person. That usually those people are hiding something. That there's actually an issue in their own heart. And the way they confront that issue is trying to appear more holy than other people who are also in the same boat. And they do that with the guise of legalism. Rules. Regulations. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't sit here. Don't go there. But it's never how Jesus responds in these three parables. Because we're going to see the Lord respond... And show them what it's really like to have a heart after God's own heart. The scribes and the Pharisees are basically furious in this setting. The general public is a little bit wishy-washy as you can kind of tell. They're kind of I don't really know what Jesus is doing. But I want you to notice the people who were on the fringes of side, the people that desperately needed a touch from the Lord. Uh, uh, the people who were who knew beyond any shadow of doubt that they needed jesus they were in love with it they they looked at the lord jesus and it was just like oh finally somebody that cares about us somebody that will minister to us as the scribes and the pharisees kind of drew their own self-righteous robes around you can almost see them sneering and jeering and kind of pointing at the outcasts and going you know that guy over there and that woman over there and we saw them over there and what they're not saying is oh I slept with her last week I was with that guy at a party that website is the same website that I looked at I want you to hear what I'm saying wow be careful, because the person who's more concerned with the sins of others than they are their own sins is in deep trouble. That's a very dangerous place to be, because the worst kind of deception that you can be under is self-deception. The deception that allows you to walk and talk and act like you're holy when in fact you're seriously lost and so jesus begins to speak to this group and really he's responding to their sarcasm and i i want to tell you something that what is said about jesus in these first two verses there is no greater thing said about jesus in all of the bible than what is here this Man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, praise the Lord for those words. I don't think there's anything more beautiful ever said about Jesus. Because if that's not true, none of us are going to make it to heaven. Because I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And praise the Lord that when, when I met Jesus, I wasn't all cleaned up and beautiful. Praise the Lord that when I met Jesus, I was a mess. Praise the Lord that he received me as I was, and that process of sanctification may have begun at that time that his Holy Spirit revealed to me the glories of his grace, but I, by no shake of the imagination, was somebody that you'd look at and go, wow, there's somebody destined for spiritual goodness. I was lost. And I think a vast majority of us in here tonight could say yes and amen. I don't know that there's a more beautiful thing than Jesus received those sinners and sat down and ate with them because I was in that group. It was me. And I'm sure it was you if you know the Lord. And so the Lord responds to the response of the scribes by telling them three, uh, they're really three of the most wonderful of his parables. These beautiful pictures of lost things. And they all come at it from a little bit different angle. And so in verse 3, and he spoke a a parable to them saying, so Jesus now is going to go on. Here's the situation. We know who's there. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. And they are really upset that Jesus is actually ministering to lost people. You ever been to a church where people are upset that the church is actually ministering to lost people? They don't sit in the right place. They come in after service starts. they brought coffee into the sanctuary. They didn't take a bath before they came to church. we laugh but how many of us have thought that exact thing how many of us have had maybe somebody sitting next to us and you're kind of wondering you know i wonder if they really are here because their hearts right before god it's pretty easy to become pharisaical it's not a long leap when you forget how lost you actually were before you came to Jesus. When you don't understand that you still desperately need a Savior every moment of every day as long as you're on this earth in these mortal bodies until we go home to be with Jesus, every one of us needs that forgiving flow. And so he spoke this parable to them saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now I want you to think of something for a second. What Jesus said is absolutely true. However, it absolutely makes zero sense logistically and statistically. Amen? I'm good. I've got 99%. The 1% loser. And yet, something within us is drawn because it was put there by God. Something in us draws us to the one lost sheep. Because remember, we were created in His image. We actually have minds that were fashioned and shaped by God Himself. We were created for good works that we should walk in them. And so it should be no surprise to you, even though it makes no sense, that what Jesus just said is absolutely true. You leave the 99, they're going to be okay, and you go after the one which is lost until you find it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, And I want you to just lay hold of that truth because he says shoulders. uses the plural there, as in both of them. He's not going to let that one go. He's going to put them both shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. And I say to you that likewise there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance. You see, when people come to me and they say, you know, maybe we should have some more rules. I will usually direct them to this passage. Now, rules are good. and I don't want to say that we shouldn't have any. But when rules keep out the one, and all we do is make the 99 that are already here fat, we've missed what Jesus has to say here. We need to be concerned about the one. The one lost one. And so Jesus takes a moment, steps aside, and says, I think the 99 are going to be okay. Because he tells us who they are. They're the righteous ones, the ones who already know the Lord. And he basically says, look, there's joy in heaven over the one that comes to repentance. There's more joy than there really is over those who need no repentance in that sense, not for the justification that comes by faith. God cares about lost sinners. That's his chief aim. That's his goal. It's the reason, ultimately, we're first to draw people to Christ so that they come to know our Savior and then disciple them, make disciples of all men, all nations. In order to do that, we have to care about the One. And I want you to notice something that One is lost. That one is wandering. That one has taken a path that perhaps you and I would look at and say, well, it kind of deserves to be lost. And so the Lord simply responds to the sarcasm of this group. And in the crowd, I want you to see something. There are really three different groups of people if you want to look at it that way. And there are these. There are the Pharisees and the scribes. And you could say they represent the law. They represent legalism. They represent rules. They represent regulations. They represent what you do on the outside. They represent a lot of things that people gravitate towards when they think about religion. They were religionists. The publicans and the sinners, the publicans were the tax collectors. They were hated by both the Jews and the Gentiles. So they were pretty much on everybody's bad list. Nobody liked them. They pretty much had no one in this world that cared one way or another. If one of them were to die, most people probably would have stood on the side of the road and go, yay, another tax collector's dead. And the sinners, it's a general term. It just means people that aren't right with God. They don't know him, haven't met him. And praise God that while we were yet still sinning, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? So there's the, there's the law breakers. First you have the law givers, the law respecters, the law knowers, and then you have the law breakers. And then the third group. And that's the people that were already saved, the Lord's disciples. And they were the ones that had already been freed from the law. So you have, you have the full gamut. You have the people trusting in rules and regulations. You have those who know that they're messed up, but they don't really know what to do about it. And then you have the ones that are already freed from the bondage of sin and death. And they're all sitting together hearing this this wonderful word from the Lord. And when you see the responses, it's kind of like none of them actually got the whole picture. They all were kind of a little messy. You see, because that's what happens. The legalists figure that more rules and regulations and law will take care of it. The sinners are like, well, everybody does that, so what does it matter? And then the disciples are like, well, we're saved by grace, so, you know, we'll just, it's okay. And the Lord's trying to minister to all three groups all at once. Much of what the Lord is, is doing here, just, you can, you can almost see their little gears spinning. And so he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, does not immediately leave the ninety and nine? And go wherever you got to go. He uses the term wilderness here. Go into the wilderness. Which one of you wouldn't do that? Does not leave them. And go wherever you got to go. It's one of the things I think the church needs to improve on. And I'm not just talking about us, this church, but the church universally. It's getting out of our comfort zone and going where the one lost sheep is. Not, not sitting in our little comfy spot, which is filled with, you know, those people that know the law. They've studied the word. They, they can probably tell you where everybody's wrong and messed up. Not so much the people who are already walking with the Lord because they know the answer already but where the one's at. And here's how this works out in your life, my life. Every one of you knows where there's a lost sheep. I would stake my very life on it that every one of you knows where there's at least one lost sheep. Every one of you. And I'm going to ask you a question. What are you doing to fulfill exactly what Jesus said to do? What are you doing to go after the one? Not the 99, the one. Because that's what we've been called to do. Now, does that mean that you forsake everything else that God's called you to do? No, that's not the picture that's given here. Because we know the shepherd comes back to the sheep. But what are you doing for the one? You see, because people are like sheep. You may not know this, but sheep are very dumb, and they're very disobedient. People are like sheep. We do dumb things. After a couple of decades as a camp director, I can tell you, people do dumb things. You ask a junior hire why they do anything, they cannot tell you. Doesn't matter. It makes no difference what you ask them about. Well, I don't know why I did that today's Tuesday, you know, that'll be the answer they'll give you. People really are disobedient and very often dumb. They do things and they don't even know why they do it. And so in that sense, people do need to be shepherded a little bit. Domestic sheep or not, you know, when you think of a fleet, you know, you, you don't think of gazelle and sheep in the same mindset, right? gazelle's fleet and swift and you know you see it bouncing around on rocks and you're going man majestic animal and you sheep dumb furball that trips over its own feet and falls over there's a reason that the lord uses sheep as an example for people because we can't get out of our own way sometimes we have to tendency to wander we're kind of like you know when sheep bleat when they go ah, ah, that's kind of like That's their admission that not everything's okay in my life. I'm not sure what's going on here. (laughs) They have a tendency to wander. They get stinky. They don't bathe themselves. If you've ever smelled sheep in the spring, it's not nice. You're never going to find a cologne called Eau de Sheep not happening they go places they shouldn't go they're getting things they shouldn't get into you ever get them in a place where they can get into any kind of mess they're going to get into that mess almost 100 percent of the time and so jesus is bringing them to a biblical understanding of this and and at that time the the shepherd would have at night brought the sheep into the sheepfold and the shepherd would actually be the gate That's why Jesus talks about himself being the gate of the sheep. The shepherd would literally sit in the hole that's in the sheepfold wall and they would prevent the sheep from either going out or make sure that the sheep come in and the enemy stays outside. So the shepherd's doing his job. But during that day and time, sheepfolds were not like they are today. They weren't made out of welded iron. And, you know, they weren't put up perfectly. They were usually a a rock enclosure. Sometimes they'd use natural barriers like hedges and all those kind of things. And then they'd fill the rest of the parts in with little rock walls and things to keep the sheep in a general location. It was to protect them. They were brought in at night to keep them from harm. And so Jesus is saying, look there's a hole in the hedge, there's a hole in the wall, there's a hole in the sheepfold, and one gets away, aren't you going to go after that one sheep? Because they all matter. Once they're exposed to their foes, sheep don't last too long. And here's another thing about sheep. Once one sheep finds a hole in the sheepfold wall, guess what the rest of the sheep do? Man, hey! Look there—he goes, Bob. <laughs> He's outside. You know, they just all kind of wander out the same hole, and pretty soon, pretty soon, there's more lost sheep than there are found sheep. Then you got like two herds, two flocks. You see, sometimes sheep. Get themselves into a bunch of trouble. They're they're careless. They're foolish. They ignored the perils around them. In Isaiah 9 6, it says of Jesus about government, and the government of his peace shall be on his shoulder singularly. Jesus cares about government. He says, government, I'll put on one shoulder. Sheep, I'll put on two. Shoulders. Jesus is in the people business. The sheep business. He gives them the punchline. He's saying, look. There's joy in heaven over the one who repents. The one sheep that returns. The second lost thing. Is some lost silver. And so, this first lost thing, the sheep, you could say is internal. It's a problem from within the sheep. They wander. They do their own thing. They go their own way. They get into their own kind of trouble. And now he shifts gears and talks about some silver coins. Or what woman, he says in verse 8 having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin. Now, bear in mind, coins do not have a brain. Sheep have a brain. It's a small one, but they have a brain. Coins don't have a brain. They have no capacity to think. They cannot reason. They can't do anything for themselves. They're completely dependent on outside forces acting upon the coins to be wherever they are. So wherever they are, that's where they are. And there's not a thing the coin can do about it. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls to her friends and her neighbors and brings them together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so, in the first story, we have internal issues, we have wayward wandering and carelessness, and now we have external issues and circumstance, acting on the one coin. coin didn't have any fault of its own. The coin was just there. It was doing what coins do, sitting in a pile, someplace on a top of a rock and it gets knocked into a crack it gets covered up maybe with a little dirt from people walking around you see the world is like that and in this case all of these things represent people but this coin has done nothing but it's in an environment to where it's being acted upon And there are people whose lostness can be chiefly attributed to the fact that they're in a messed up, jacked up world. The world's a mess. And through no fault of their, you don't get to pick which parents you're born to, amen? You very often don't even get to pick which area of the world you live in. Circumstance rather pushes and dictates that this is going to be where you're going to live. This is how you're going to make a living. There are people who are in circumstances in their lives really through no fault of their own that have borne in on their life and they are in that place. You see the Lord cares about the external things in your life the circumstances of your life as much as he cares about those internal things or maybe your own carelessness or foolishness. He is the Lord of all of our issues. This particular coin came under the influence of gravity. It fell. It was gone, it was lost. It ended up in darkness and in dirt. And spiritually, you can see, there's a lot of people in the world that are in that place. When you travel around the world, there are countries that are just without the light of the Lord. It's spiritually dark. But the Lord cares about the one who repents there as well. And I want you to notice something. The woman's sense of loss was very real. I mean, even though, again, she had 10 silver coins, she still got 90% of her wealth. That's not hideous. She could have written this one coin off. But there was a sense of loss, and the Lord acknowledges that sense of loss. And she lights a lamp. Anytime you see light in scripture we automatically point back to jesus because he's the light of the world amen and that light which shines upon men because they used to walk in darkness but there's a problem with mankind men love darkness amen and so here the light begins to shine she lights a lamp the word of god comes on dispels the darkness the holy spirit is at work in this world revealing these things and. The Holy Spirit, is you can just see the Holy Spirit sweeping to and fro, looking for this one coin, just like the woman's taking the lamp and shining light. When the Holy Spirit reveals sin and righteousness, the Holy Spirit does so without prequalification. The Holy Spirit doesn't just shine on good people. The Holy Spirit shines on lost people. That's one of the things that we as a church are supposed to do, Amen. We're supposed to shine on lost people. Can I ask you another question? Do you have any lost friends? Are there people in your life who don't know the Lord? You see, you may have some sheep that are wandering. Do you have some people in your life who need some light? If you do, shine some light on them so that they can be found. You see, Jesus looks at this one lost coin much like he looks at the one lost sheep and says, every coin, every sheep matters. Second lost thing. The third lost thing. And it's really two sons. And I want you to take notice here. As you look at this, this final section, it will pick up in verse 12 and really finish the chapter. As you look at this, there's two sons. Both sons are in the same household. In that sense, there's no difference. They've got the same dad. And then he said, A certain man had two sons, and he gave the younger of them, and he said to his father, Father, here comes the young son. Now, I want you to see that very often that balance between zeal and wisdom. Jesus makes it clear in Scripture, and this is one of them. There's a a time and a purpose for youthful zeal, and there's a time and a purpose for aged wisdom. And sometimes you you get a lot of one and none of the other, and sometimes it's reversed. I've met believers with a lot of wisdom but no zeal. I've met believers, especially young ones, with a lot of zeal and no wisdom. You need both. And a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. Now I want you to notice something. There's no reason for us to believe that this father was, you know, near imminent death. It wasn't like he was going to croak that day. There's no reason for us to think that there was a reason for this to even be done. But we have in view this scandalous sun. And as you look at that scandalous sun, you can kind of see what the attraction is. And the attraction is the things of the world. Like men, oftentimes people are lost through rebellion and pride and self-will and deliberate choice. They just choose the wrong things. And so we have crummy choices, the experiential in view here. So you have internal, you have external, and you have experiential in these three pictures. And this one's going to be lost in the experiences of things. There are those that that's where they gravitate towards. But they're very lost. They, they look at the experiences of life. And if I could just experience something a little bit bigger and a little bit better and a little bit deeper, then that would fulfill every one of my heart's desires. And so the Lord is really showing us the, the fallacy of turning too far inward and turning too far outward or being too terribly experiential anywhere between those two points. And Jesus points us towards where this man's focus was, which was the the far horizons, the better things, the things that could be out there that, that they have not yet experienced. And so many people get lost and stay lost because they are focused out on the far horizon of the things that this world has to offer. And they're looking out there at that next experience and go, if I just was able to do that, or if I was just able to have that, Sometimes materialism creeps into this very same uh, mindset that we find this young man in. We see also in these three stories, in this one, in the sheep, we see the, the son. In the story of the lost coin, we see primarily the work of the Spirit. And here we see the work of Father God. So the whole of the Godhead at work in these three parables that Jesus tells. That this young man was looking out there And he's saying, look, these things are, I have them coming to me. I want to take my inheritance now. You know, I want to be able to burn it while I'm still able to enjoy it. And so let me have it so I can go do my own thing. Some people are lost that way. They make very poor choices in life. As this young man begins to heed the lure of those faraway places, People do that, especially our children. You know, things look really good when you have had everything handed to you from the time that you were born until the time that you leave. It looks like everything is easy. It looks like what lies over that next ridge. I I have talked to so many young people that ended up in some kind of a problem in life because they believed something that was untrue, because they viewed it from afar, and as they marched towards that goal, they realized it wasn't what they expected. It looked good from the distance. But when you get in the middle of it, it does not do what it purported it might. And I want you to notice, there was no indignance on the part of the Father here. And basically, this young man walks up to his dad and says, Hey, dad, let's pretend you're dead. So I can have my inheritance. And the father doesn't go, well, that kind of stinks. Don't know that I really want to do that. Now remember that this shows the work of the father. Father. You're going to see the Father used 12 times in in these remaining verses. Aren't you glad that God doesn't take our disrespect and say, well, I'm never talking to you again. He doesn't disown us. He doesn't cast us off. He doesn't say that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. He allows us to make choices. And He's still concerned for us. He doesn't refuse this outrageous son's request. He just looks at him and he says, "Mm, Son, I don't think you're really ready for where you're going. But I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. You need to make the right choices yourself. So I'm going to give you what you ask for. Can I tell you tonight, be careful what you ask God for? Because he may well give it to you. And some of you senior saints in the room, you know exactly what I'm saying. You have asked God for things. Looking back on it, you go, man, that was the dumbest request I have ever made. And they come in the form of all kinds of things. Jobs, houses, cars, even spouses. I've had to sit with an awful lot of couples that, you know, they, they didn 't do what they needed to do before they got married, and they really have issues once they got married. Well, you know, Lord, she is like this, or he is like that, and they look past the obvious well, she or he doesn 't even know the Lord well, you know they 're just they 're just a Christian then waiting. no actually, scripture says you 're not supposed to be unequally yoked, but you know they 're going to come to the Lord, I just know it. And they beg and they beg and they beg and they tell God and they cajole God and they prod God and God finally says, look, I, I'm not going to stop you from making the choice. And they live long enough to know that that decision was wrong. And they have to run back to Father God. Praise God that He's there. And that's the beauty of the remainder of this story. In verse 13 we pick up and not many days after the younger son gathered all together in other words he takes all of his stuff every bit of his inheritance and journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living all of that stuff that that the father knew should be better left for later in life the younger son wanted those things right there right now we don't know where you know jesus was referring to as far as a faraway country but from where jesus was it it would have been a a three-day journey over to the coast at caesarea maritima could have boarded a ship there and crossed the aegean sea would have eventually landed at putoli and and then made their way up the the appian way up to rome you can you can almost see you know the the allure of that journey how many young people oh I'm just gonna grab a backpack and I'm gonna wander around Europe and I'm gonna see the sights and and then you find out that they end up in some kind of a relationship or they end up abusing drugs or they end up in you know some kind of horrible situation because there was an allure of something that maybe you as parents actually protected your children from for a very long time. But looking from afar wanting to make their own choices. The choice was made to do something that was not beneficial or helpful to them. Could have headed to Egypt or maybe Carthage or gone all the way to Spain to Tarshish. Who knows? We don't know exactly where this, where this picture is that Jesus is trying to make, but we know this. It was carnality central. It was a place that was not pleasing to Father. Father. And we know because of the results. Our choices in life have consequences. And when we make the wrong choice, Father God's a gentleman. He doesn't force His will upon us. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to make you do this. Even though you want to do something, I'm going to make you do the right thing. No, He leaves us hands off. He says, if that's what you want to do, Uh, by my spirit i'm telling you no but if you want to do that that's your choice and so this young man lives long enough to to regret the choice that he makes and he he makes plans but his plans are this he wasted his substance with riotous living with carnal living with debauched living throwing his money away you know what's really interesting when you have a lot of money you also have a lot of friends But when you ain't got no money, you also ain't got no friends. Because the world is that shallow. It's exactly what it happens. I'll share a little story out of my own life, out of Connie and I's life. I was in business with my parents. About 15 years. We had assembled a business empire worth many millions of dollars. And... My parents got involved in racehorses and gambling, all kinds of stuff. The net result of that was the destruction of that business enterprise and the, the corporations that we had founded. And, and at the end, all it was left to do was basically wrap all these businesses up and put them into bankruptcy and take care of those things. And, and we did that. And as we were doing that, these people who had purported to be friends... friends in business, as long as there were cars and houses and racehorses and, you know, all kinds of, you know, well, can you take me to the track and we can sit in your private box and do all those kind of things. As long as that was going on, everybody was my friend. But as soon as all the money was gone, hey, I'll buy all your stuff, 10 cents on the dollar. Matter of fact, I'll buy your business. Ten cents on the dollar. That's the world. Do not make the mistake that the world cares one iota for anything in your life because the world does not care. That's not saying that every person is like the person that I'm referencing here. But the world system, the one who is the ruler of the darkness of this age, does not care about you. Couldn't care less if you drop dead. Would be actually happy if it happened. And so the whole time this young man's on this journey, Satan is wringing his hands going, I got another one. Can't wait until he gets to Rome. Oh, he's going to have a great couple of weeks. Then he's going to have a mediocre month. And then he's going to have a hellish year. And the whole time the devil's going, gotcha. The enemy's trying to destroy and the Lord gives us this picture. This man throwing away his money, living in debauchery, surrounded by fast-living friends. You can almost hear him scream, you know, Come on, guys. Drinks are on me. Throw in a party. Throw in all of the things that our minds might think. And verse 14 says, But when he had spent all... And I love the way that's phrased. It doesn't just mean money. The way that's phrased in the original language, when he was fully spent, when there was nothing left, not financially, not emotionally, not physically, this man is a wreck, he's destroyed, there's nothing left of him in any way, shape, or form. Not just his money's gone, his life, the plug's been pulled out. When he had spent all There arose a severe famine in the land, and the glory of the Lord shone round about him because he began to want. I don't want to speak to you for just a second. You see, sometimes when people come and they talk to me about the things that are going on in their life and they share their problems and their concerns, and when I say something to them like, I believe the Lord's trying to get your attention. They get really, really, really upset. It's like, how could you say something? Because it's true. God loves us so much that he allows things into our lives that are painful and hurtful. Hellish. That's how much he loves us. He doesn't want to do those things, but he knows what it takes to motivate us to begin to think correctly and act correctly and walk correctly and travel correctly and get back where we belong. He began to want. That's the Holy Spirit at work in this young man's life. Man, this stinks. So maybe you know somebody. Maybe you yourself are here tonight and part of your life is a wreck. That's God saying to you, I'm letting you want, I'm letting that person want so that they will hate where they are and go where they should be. That's the Lord at work. That's God working in lives. Cutting off all the pathways. Shutting down the road. Making you go where he needs you to go by by taking away all the things that we hold dear. Don't ever underestimate the, the power of the Lord to get our attention through changing our circumstances. Saying, look, you're going the wrong way. And I love you too much to do that without telling you how bad it's going to be at the end. And so he lets it fall apart. Uh, I Connie would bear witness. There some of the most blessed things that have ever happened to us before we really began to serve the Lord was he showed us the futility of walking after the things of this world. And then, when he had joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything you see that's the world the world will watch you go right into the toilet and they're not going to care well, they'll pretend as long as you have something to offer but as soon as you start that slide the world's saying see ya don't get any on ya People don't care. At the end of the day, government doesn't care. Politicians don't care. God cares. God cares. And He cares deeply. And He wants it to be well with our souls. So hungry was this man that he's digging into the slop bucket, going through the muck, trying to find something in there that might be partially edible. And you know, when you give yourself over to the world, that's exactly where you usually end up. You find yourself in that place where you're eating things you would have never eaten. You're doing things you would have never done. You're saying things you would have never said. You are in places you would never go. And the Lord says to us, don't go there. So much for that beautiful view of the far horizon. You can almost see this young man standing on the shore maybe maybe he had gone from jerusalem to maybe jaffa and he's standing there in the port city of jaffa one of the oldest cities in the world and he's looking across the mediterranean wondering you know how far it is to rome and maybe he's looking at the roman centurions wandering the streets carrying their their banners with their eagle shields on the top of them You know, dressed in their finery, thinking, man, wherever those guys are, whatever they're, whoever they represent, man, that's where I'm going. And little did he know the cost of following the world. And then, verse 17, again, some of the sweetest words found in all of our Bible is the word, but especially when it comes a little bit later as we close this out, but God. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have enough bread, enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You see, when the Holy Spirit turns on that conviction in your life, and you come running, Father's looking. He's watching. He's waiting. Can't wait to hear those words. Not long after he makes that confession, he's already had that conviction going on, but he makes the confession. And now, with that conviction, he begins to act. And it's so important, because Scripture is very clear there in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. But we got to tell God that we know what's wrong. There's, there's a problem. And I'm sorry about it, God. Not well, can I keep the muck in you too? Can I keep the muck? Can I wander around in my own filth for the rest of my life? And, you know, we can be square, right, God? No. you got to come to the conclusion you're in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. And you don't want to be there anymore. It's called repentance. This young man repented. Oh, look, I'll, 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 wash, I'll do whatever. I'll wash dishes. You can almost imagine him going to the guy that he's currently working for. and He's banging on the corner. He's going, hey, mister, I'm going home. And the guy's probably looking at him like, where are you going, man? You got nothing. Because that's what the world does. The world says, oh, you're stuck. Just stay there. The man probably looked at him, even disgusted. He says, man, look at you. Again, that's what the world does. The world destroys and demeans and diminishes. And then it says, look at you. Nobody wants you. Yeah, somebody does want you. And his name is Jesus. Somebody does want you. And he wants you desperately. And his name is Jesus. Father, God is aching for lost people to run back. And he arose, verse 20 says, and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, I love this. This is such a beautiful part of this story. When he was a great way off, and and the words that are used used here are the father probably wasn't exactly sure, but he was pretty sure. And so to make sure, the father begins to make the journey down the road towards the son. I love that. Because God knows when you're making that turn, God knows when you've made that choice. God knows when you said, I I don't want to be here anymore, and I'm coming back. You see, sometimes that's kind of a slow process. People make a decision, and we sometimes as believers aren't very helpful to people who are trying to turn their lives around. We spend more time condemning them than we do commending them for those little steps that were back towards the Lord. Because here's what happens in heaven. Father God turns his full face towards that lost sinner. And Father God unashamedly, with the embarrassment of his... Men didn't run during those days. And they certainly wouldn't have girded up their loins and exposed their legs and looked undignified. And that's what this passage says. This man literally sees his son afar off. He believes it's his son. He's looking... And he comes down from his position on the roof, maybe the watchtower of the house. And he says, I'm going to run and make, I think this is my son. And he's made the turn. And here comes God running. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck. And he kissed him in the original languages. This was not just, you know, he gave him a peck on the cheek. This was he nearly smothered this poor boy with kisses. And he wrapped his arms around him. He wouldn't let him go. Man, don't you think that God loves us? Because there's no indication this man cleaned up his life all the way. He may have still smelled like pigs. If you've ever smelled pigs, you know what that's like. That's not good. And this this father, our father, our heavenly father... Jesus leaves the glories of heaven, considers it not robbery to be made equal with man, comes to this earth, and dies a death on the cross and runs to us. He says, I love you this much. And the son in verse 21 says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. But notice what the father does and how he responds in verse 22. Because the father's not going to let him go, but the father says to his servants, bring out the very best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Now bear in mind, this young man has squandered his share of the inheritance. It's gone. Can you see the beautiful picture in this? God doesn't care where you've been and what you've done. He doesn't care what you've thrown away. He cares that you've come back. He cares that you want to be in his family. And he throws that robe on him. Sandals on his feet. This guy's barefoot. No telling what he looked like. And then they bring out the fatted calf and they kill it and let us eat and be merry for the son that was dead. And we who were dead In our trespasses and sins. He hath made alive. My son that was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Do you see in each of these cases. God doesn't care how you got lost. God doesn't care how people get lost. God cares that they become unlost. And He, becares, he cares so much that He'll leave the ninety and nine sheep. He'll, he'll let the nine coins stay on the shelf and find the one. He'll take the rebellious son and He'll go running down the road in an undignified manner and make a complete fool out of Himself because He loves us that much. You, you see, the gospel of grace is foolishness it's exactly what paul said to those who are being lost but to them who are saved it's the gospel of god into salvation amen you see it doesn't even make sense why would god want somebody who's thrown away their future willingly disobeyed and gone where they shouldn't go but that's how deep grace is that's the glory of grace, family of God. As chapter ends this way and now the older son and I want you to see now we're back to the Pharisees. Now we're back to the scribes, we're back to the Sadducees, we're back to the law. We've made it all the way back really to the Jewish people. But in a way legalism in general. And now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house and he heard the music and he saw the dancing and when he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant he said to them your brother has come home and because he's received him safe and sound your father has killed the fatted calf and he was angry. You see what legalism does? You see what the law does? You see what righteousness that's from you does? Me does? You see, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And here they are. They're throwing a party, and this guy can't even be happy. The older brother can't even be happy that his younger brother's back in. He's basically saying, get him out of the house. That's what the law does. That's what religion does. That's what, in a way, Israel did When the Gentiles became recipients of God's grace and they couldn't understand, look, we've had the law all these years. And Paul knew a lot about the law. And as he would write about it, he says, look, in all these things, I've not erred but once. And so he answered, look, he he says, look, he's angry and he wouldn't go. He's not going to go in and join the party. And therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. And he said and answered to him, Father, lo, all these many years I've been serving you. Look, I've followed the law. I've been really religious. I've followed it to the letter. I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Be careful. Because though this is a picture ultimately of national Israel, I praise the Lord that we know because Scripture reminds us the Apostle Paul would write Romans chapters 9 through 11 and give this beautiful picture of God drawing his own people back to him and one day all Israel will be saved, even his grace will extend there. But be careful of the misery that can come into your life when you adjoin yourself with those who can't rejoice when sinners come to repentance. And I've met them. I've met people who say, well, I don't think he's really saved. Well, I don't see any fruits of repentance. While we're supposed to be fruit inspectors, you might want to leave the final inspection to God. And let the grace of God Be magnificent to people. Oh, you point them, direct them, share with them the truth, but share it in love in hopes that you can join the party, not that they shouldn't be in your righteous party. You see, God wants to throw a party when people are lost and they're found. And we should do the same thing. But as soon as this young son of yours came, devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf, basically saying, he's no brother of mine. I said, son, you were always with me and all that I have is yours. But it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother who is dead and is alive, was lost and is found. So this whole chapter, three sets of lost things, external, internal, circumstantial, and each time God rejoices because that which is lost is found. You think God cares about lost things, lost stuff? I know he does. And he rejoices when those who are lost are found. Amen? Would you stand? We're going to pray. While we're praying, I'm going to actually have the pastors come forward. Maybe you've got somebody in your life you want to pray for. Maybe you're here tonight and you're actually still lost. And you want to be found. Maybe that cry of the gospel of grace has gone out to you. And you've heard it and you want to receive. I would strongly encourage you to abandon that far-off journey and return to the God who loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God. I was covered with dirt. I was dipped in mud. Lord, all of us, I truly believe there's not one of us in here that's saved that wouldn't say yes and amen. When when you found us, we were really lost. Some of us lost one way and some of us lost another, but we were lost. And you and the angels in heaven threw a party when we were found. And you rejoiced and you put a robe of righteousness on us and a, and a ring that signifies that we belong and you put on our feet the, the gospel of peace. Yeah, you gave us a helmet of salvation and a shield of faith to protect ourselves. Father, we pray tonight that you would just move in this place. And this little bit of remaining time, Lord, by your spirit. Or maybe there are some broken people tonight. Maybe there are some lost people tonight. Father, perhaps there's some sheep in here that have been wandering. They, they've gone each one unto their own way, exactly as the prophet Isaiah declared and Paul recounted. And so we pray that your spirit would be drawing men to repentance. They'll find at that place of grace your unbelievable forgiveness and your cleansing. And we thank you, Lord, that you come after the ninety and nine. For each of us. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. We have no way to repay you, Lord. We can only say we exalt you and we bless you. We offer our lives and service to you as living sacrifices because it's right. So God bless us with your presence by your spirit. Thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for those sweet, and precious words that that it just is so ringing true with each of us. That this man receives sinners and eats with them. Thank you, Lord, for doing that with each of us. Thank you for receiving us, blessing us. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. God's people all said. Amen. Amen.